It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to Fine Time for Healing on this Friday. We're at the end of the week, and I hope you all have wonderful plans for the weekend. Memorial Day is coming, and um, hopefully you get some extra days off. Um, Today we're going to be talking about narcissistic abuse, and the core problem in relationships with narcissists is that they prioritize power and sacrifice the relationship to get it, while their partners prioritize the relationship and sacrifice themselves to keep it. What a great way to say that. Today's special guest is codependency and narcissism expert Darlene Lancer. In her book, Dating, Loving, and Leaving a Narcissist, Essential Tools for Improving or Leaving Narcissistic and Abusive Relationships, Darlene pinpoints the dilemma and solution, offering hope to any partner, parent, sibling, friend, or coworker of a narcissist or abuser. Darlene offers her insight into typical problems people in narcissistic relationships face and the mistakes they make. By becoming aware of these, people will start to regain their own power and finally start to live the life they deserve. Darlene has been on this show before. Um, She always has amazing things to say. She is um, Darlene Lancer, J.D. LMFT, is a licensed marriage and family therapist specializing in relationships, narcissism, and codependency. And she has a private clinical practice where she treats individuals and couples. She's been doing this for over 30 years internationally. She's also a sought-after speaker at national conferences and in popular periodicals. Good morning, Darlene. Oh, good morning to you. (laughs) And I'm glad to be speaking with you again on this serious topic that affects so many people that feel trapped in these relationships. It is so devastating to people who, you know, it's like I say, narcissists are, if you, the visual would be like, narcissists are like tornadoes that spin and then they hit your life, totally destroy it, and then they keep spinning and they move on. I mean, there's nothing that, that's not destructive about a narcissist. And so it's really important that we talk about this topic. So... Darlene, you, um, I know you, you said that you spent the last year writing this book. What, uh, why did you decide to write it? Well, you know, when I wrote Codependency for Dummies uh, 10 years ago, I thought that I would be reaching a lot of people in relationships with addicts and alcoholics because that was the origin of the research on codependency. But instead, I had a lot of people contacting me because they were in relationships with narcissists. That hadn't even occurred to me at the time. And eventually, uh, seven years ago, I wrote a book dealing with a narcissist. Uh, And that was very popular. But people kept wanting the paperback. And the research has 
exploded since then. So there's a lot of new information. And I wanted to expand it to people dating narcissists and people feeling trapped and wanting to leave. So this book is much more comprehensive and is updated with new research and it's in paper. So um, that was on my mind to do for some time. Okay, good. Good. Well, it's certainly needed. There's just not as much information as we put out there. There's, it still doesn't reach enough people. It's so hard to get this information out to the masses. And the only people that actually grasp on to this kind of information are people who have experienced it, unfortunately. I know it's probably your goal, as it is mine, to prevent this from happening. Right. And the other thing is, surprisingly, uh, most of the people that contact me want to improve the relationship. They really don't want to leave, or probably they would have already left or talked to a lawyer or something. So I want to emphasize that narcissism exists on a continuum, and some people have long-term relationships with narcissists and and make it work. Of course, there's those that are... um, that you hear about or uh, a lot of people blog about that are very malignant and cruel and uh there's the in those cases their partners and spouses really need to figure out how they're going to leave the relationship and the problem is that despite what outsiders think when you're in an abusive relationship, it's even harder to leave than a healthy one for a lot of reasons I go into the, in the book, including trauma bonds and codependency, learn helplessness, and uh, just because your self-esteem and your autonomy and confidence get so beaten down by this relationship. So after you're in it a few years, you've already been traumatized. Absolutely. And for um, I'm actually the daughter of a narcissistic mother, so I grew up in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you grow up in it, it is, um, it's a life, I mean, it takes years, decades to mm-hmm. undo what was done to you because it's how you're built. It's the, pl- the foundation on which, or lack of, on which you um, enter into adulthood. So it's very frustrating. So Darlene, um, tell us about um, how would you like to do this? Do you want to go chapter by chapter or do you want to just talk to us about it? Because I don't actually have your book in front of me. Well, I'd like to start with the sentence you said at the beginning because my book is, the theme of the book is changing the power dynamics in the relationship. And as you said, narcissists prioritize power over the relationship and their partners and loved ones prioritize the relationship and sacrifice themselves. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I just just love that. I just, it's so, I mean, you nailed it right there. Mm -hmm. And so, People, as much as they, there's on the internet and books about narcissism, people don't really understand the mind of a narcissist, and they keep trying to approach 
the narcissist and the relationship from their point of view. I mean, I don't mean the narcissist from their own, from the victim's point of view. They don't really understand the dynamics. And when you start to behave differently, you change the dynamics. So relationships are a system of a couple people, and often there's, you know, parents. You could, there's always like six people involved in a relationship at least um, because there's projections from your past and your parents. But when one person changes, the relationship changes. So I prefer sometimes to counsel the spouse or the partner of a narcissist. And as they make changes, the relationship changes, the abuse lessens. And when you take back your power, you can see the narcissist starts to decompensate. And um, my mother also was a narcissist, or at least had narcissistic features. And um, so you learn to behave in ways that are not effective with a narcissist. Being, I, I always think being a child of a of a narcissist is soul crushing mm-hmm. because <laughs> your soul is just developing and it, wanting to be expressed as an infant, as a toddler, as a child, and the narcissistic parent wants to control you or they totally abandon you, one extreme or the other. So. If you have a narcissistic parent, a mother or father, uh, you learn to adapt to that personality. And then if you get involved with one growing up, which often happens, then you keep doing the dysfunctional behavior that you learned as a child, and it doesn't work. So you start changing your behavior, and the relationship changes. So um, that's kind of what the theme of my book is. It's really about personal transformation. Well, that's certainly what's needed in these situations because people come out of them or recognize that they're in them in a very broken way. And because of the type of abuse they don't necessarily trust what they're seeing, what they're thinking, their intuition. Uh, They don't trust their judgment. And so I find that it's very difficult for people because they, as they're telling me the situation, they're also questioning what they're saying and asking me, does that make sense? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Because they're saying it, but they don't necessarily know know it to be true. Do you find the same thing? Oh yes, and it's very common. I wrote in uh, in my codependency book. And by the way, if you have a narcissistic parent, uh, you can you usually either end up either a narcissist because it's hereditary too, or a codependent. And I say that codependents don't know what normal is. So they're always asking me, in addition to what you said, is like, is how, you know, what's the right way? How how should I act? Um, they don't trust their own feelings. They don't trust their perceptions because it's all been distorted. And you've probably been labeled and called names. 
uh, and that as a child, that's what you believe. So uh, in my marriage, I didn't know. I mean, I knew that this behavior was uh, wrong and uh, this wasn't right, what was going on, but I didn't know that it was abuse. I didn't know that word until I took an assertiveness training course. And then I went home and I said to my husband, you're being abusive, and his jaw dropped. (laughs) So, um, you know, I want to tell your listeners, if you suspect you're being abused, you probably are. If you suspect you're being abused, you probably are. You don't need a diagnosis to get help. You don't need to label your partner. It doesn't matter. Abuse is abuse. And you have to learn um, how not to take it in and absorb it because people around abusers, if they don't get away from them instinctually, (laughs) then they absorb it. They absorb the abuse like a sponge, just like you're saying. And if if it resonates with you because of childhood abuse or trauma, uh, it's even worse, and then it just validates what you think about yourself already. Because the other theme is that there's shame underlying the codependency and the narcissism. And so I wrote a book on shame, conquering shame and codependency, um, a few years after the Dummies book came out. And shame is the link that ties all of this together. The narcissist projects their shame onto you and the codependent absorbs it and devalues themselves and they idealize the narcissist. That's how they get involved. And the narcissist has the shame that's unconscious inside and they devalue other people and they idealize themselves. You know, they feel superior. They inflate themselves and they devalue others. And then their partners deflate themselves and look up to the narcissist. But shame is the underlying link. And when you start healing your shame and your self-esteem and raise yourself up, what happens? It's like a seesaw. The narcissist cannot no longer get their supply and elevate themselves by devaluing you, and then their shame starts to rise. So the seesaw and the power totally shift. And generally when that happens, you know, I think this, is, this throws people because the first thing a narcissist does when their, their control and power is being stolen from them you know, that the other person is catching on or, or acting differently, the first thing they do is rage because they want it back. It's like um, it's like that book Dance of Anger where, you know, you've been doing this choreography, this dance together a certain way, and the narcissist doesn't want that to change. And when it does, that's where rage usually happens at first. And I tell people, get through the rage because they're going to get more passive because they're scared. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. And a lot of times uh, the partner is so terrified because of 
the trauma in the relationship or maybe from an angry parent, that they get so scared that they cave. But that is the turning point. And that's why people need support from a coach like you or a therapist or at least a sponsor in a 12-step program so that they can hold on. You know, um, I've had clients that were just terrified. They were ready to get committed, commit themselves because their their partner was raging. And we're on the phone and they hold on. And the next thing you know, the next day or something, their partner that was threatening to walk out and packed up their belongings was finding some way to to back off the ledge as they had drawn a red line that they couldn't even um, go through with themselves. And so they were trying to back back up their back down from their position. People don't realize that narcissists are very dependent. I think they're codependent too. I wrote a blog. Narcissists are codependent too. I guess I'm in the minority, but uh, they act independent. They act like they're needless, and so the and then the their partners feel like they're needy. But it's all part of their act because they don't want to show any vulnerability. To show that they need you makes them feel weak, and that's the worst thing that they want to feel that feels humiliating to them. So they don't, and oftentimes if you leave them, they'll do this hovering where they'll try to, um, you know, follow you, text you, draw you, suck you back in like a Hoover vacuum is where the name comes from. So they usually don't want to leave. Um, But that's again where the power starts to shift. And I made an acronym out of the word power. Okay. So, yeah, the first, the P stands for what you just said, that the narcissist prioritize power and sacrifice the relationship to get it, or okay. other people prioritize the relationship and sacrifice themselves to keep it. And then the O stands for uh, opposing beliefs, because... People don't understand the narcissist's brain works differently. This is what I was saying at the outset. They lack empathy, so they don't see other people as separate from themselves. So they see you as like a two-dimensional, like a cardboard doll or something. They don't think of you as having an interior feelings, longings, needs. So it's no surprising they're inconsiderate. So... I'll have people say, well, I did so much, I gave so much, I was always there for, you know, my my husband, my wife, whatever he or she needed, and I asked them this one thing, and they won't do it. They're so selfish. So even that statement belies the fact that they don't really understand who they're dealing with. They keep giving and meeting the demands, hoping that they'll get their needs met in return. But that's not how a narcissist thinks. A narcissist sees relationships as business transactions. They want to get what they want at the lowest cost. So it's always a negotiation. So you have to raise the cost for them, and they will pay more for what they want. But you have to be uh, resolute in that and explain to him 
Because of the lack of empathy, they don't understand the impact of their behavior. They didn't get that at an early age. Sometimes they were indulged or they just weren't seen because of the toxic parenting that they got. I want to add that in in my book, I go into some of the child development to really understand who you're dealing with because about four years old, a toddler learns that their mother is separate. Oh, you're mommy and I'm me. That stage of development, for reasons I go into, doesn't happen with a narcissist. They still see you as an extension of themselves. So um, you were talking about rage. There was one time when my mother felt had this story that I my behavior caused her humiliation. Well, it was really ridiculous how she was uh, coming to that conclusion in her mind. Um, so, and she was furious at me. And I just said a simple thing. I just said, well, I don't take responsibility for that. <laughs> it just kind of blew her cover. She didn't know how to respond to that. That was a boundary. I wasn't taking on her projection. But it's just what you're saying. When they feel humiliated, and that's the shame coming up, they will go into a rage. And you could just, you know, blink your eye (laughs) a certain way, and they'll think that that was shaming. So the shame underlies, and I'll go into this in in a bit, but if you look at the characteristics and traits of the diagnosis, Shame underlies almost all of them. Anyway, so that's the O, the opposing beliefs. And then the W, P-O-W, is that people don't want to make waves. And they waive their rights and they waive their needs in the relationship. So their partners go along to get along. But a narcissist could care less about getting along. They want to get ahead. They want to be number one. They want to be on top. So, in fact, they like to provoke arguments because that's an opportunity for them to uh, get on top because when you argue, you lose. Maybe you've heard of the acronym JADE. Do you know that one, Randy? No, but I know know the concept that you're saying, but tell us what JADE is. Yeah, JADE is a very important thing to remember. And it means that you don't justify the J, you don't argue the A, you don't defend yourself the D, and you don't explain. All those things are reactions. And even I have a blog on my website, Do's and Don'ts of Confronting Abuse. When you react, what you're saying is you have the power to judge me, And my self-esteem now is in your hands. I want your approval. And a lot of people who come from dysfunctional families, they want to be seen. They want to be understood. They want to be heard. So they end up looking to their partner for that validation. But, again, a narcissist doesn't see you as separate. They see you as an extension. My mother felt humiliated, so it's my fault. You know, they see you as an extension of themselves. Interestingly, 
along that subject. A few days before my mother was dying, um, I mentioned something to her. Oh, it's kind of funny. She wanted me to give her a manicure because she knew she was dying and she wanted her nails done. (laughs) 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 And I'll just add... For the cast, for the the wig. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And uh, true to form, she put on her... This is a little personal side story. She put on a very lovely negligee and she was taking oxygen um, at the time. So she she was all dressed up with makeup and jewelry and her negligee. <laughs> and she didn't put on her oxygen that night. So she actually took her life, but she wanted to go out like a queen. <laughs> so oh, anyway, so... Oh, my gosh, that is so poignant. That is so perfect. That is, says it all. So, um, but... When I was doing her nails, oh, she said, I I wasn't wearing nail polish or something. I said, well, it turns my nails yellow or something. And she said, really? She says, oh, it it doesn't, that doesn't happen to me. But it was, her tone of voice was she was curious because all my life was like the ways we were different I was wrong. She couldn't see me as an individual, only an extension of her. But in the last, and there was something else she said. So in the last day or two before she died, she it was, she was suddenly like seeing me as separate. Maybe her aspects of her narcissism were receding, you know, just before death. Um, so narcissists don't really see you as separate from themselves and mostly their favorite defense is projection so they will you say you know i'm suspecting you're having an affair and they'll turn it around say you are actually here comes another acronym to remember darvo maybe you've heard of that one and that's i don't know the acronym i know the i know the the um what they stand for yeah but i don't know yeah yeah oh darvo yeah so it's it's not just narcissists. A lot of abusers do this. It's like victim blaming, they, they call it. So first they deny, that's the D, and then they accuse, that's the A, and then they reverse the R, victim and offender. So that's the favorite thing is they, they deny, I didn't do anything, and then they accuse you, you're the problem. And now they're the victim, and they think accuse you of being the offender. So they do this switch. So getting back to what I was saying, any when you react, you give away your power. So I there's agree. very yeah. So there's very specific ways. I have scripts and checklists and strategies of how to communicate and get your needs met and be effective with a narcissist. So that's the. Um, so don't waive your rights. <laughs> and right, and I just I wanted to just make a a, a quick sure. point to what you were saying. I tell people to remember it this way instead of the Darvo. Accusations are confessions. That's pretty much the way it is. If they're telling you you're cheating, you can pretty much assume they are. Oh, because great, right? Because they project it right onto you. And so if 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 you can remember that. 
that what you're accused of, you don't have to defend it because it's not about you. They're telling you exactly what, who they are and what they're doing. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up. Okay. I love that. I'm going to put that on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I, put, I have a very active Facebook page, and I'm going to make a little post of that if you don't mind. <laughs> no, I just, what, is, um, what is your Facebook page? Is it just under Darlene uh, Lancer? Well, I have uh, that one, but uh, there's a lot more on codependency recovery is my okay. – um, and then you could just look at my profile too, although um, I'm maxed out on friends. But you could follow either my pages. I'm also on Twitter and I have a YouTube channel and on LinkedIn, Instagram. Anyway, so then we come to E, P-O-W-E. Okay. E. So, yeah, and this – especially applies to dating. The E stands for excitement. So uh, if you've ever dated a narcissist, they can be very thrilling, exciting, and this applies to borderline personality disorder also, or maybe histrionic. So a lot of people with uh, personality disorders, or even bipolar, you know, they can be, um, which is not a personality disorder, it's a mood disorder, but they can be very thrilling and exciting to date. And uh, people that are going out with them confuse excitement and anxiety. So they say, oh, there's so much chemistry. But what's really going on is they, they're having anxiety often. So notice instead, do you feel comfortable setting boundaries? Do you feel comfortable asking for your needs? Do you feel relaxed with this person? Or do you feel on edge or um, like you don't want to, you go along, like the same thing that you'll do later, go along to get along and not listen to what's going on inside. And this might be typical if you grew up in an environment where you had to walk on eggshells, if you didn't feel free to express yourself, your feelings, your needs, your wants. And beware, because after what you think is chemistry, you know, once the relationship is further along or you get married, this narcissist is going to turn into Jekyll and Hyde. And that's not going to be exciting. That's going to be major drama, and it's toxic. So um, don't confuse that excitement, those butterflies, uh, with excitement, it's, it can feel very much the same. But it, but that's you know, and that's how people define their entire relationship based on that honeymoon phase, that love bombing. They, the, for the rest of that relationship, they keep trying to get back what they had because they don't understand they're dealing with a narcissist, and so they think to themselves, "Well, I saw the perfect person there. What happened? It must be me." If I do it wrong, if I do it this way, if I do it that way, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, then that person's coming back. And it's very hard for them to understand that person really wasn't true. That's not who they were dealing you know, the true person. You're absolutely right. And this comes to the R. Partners relentlessly try to satisfy the narcissist's demands, uh, waiting for crumbs of kindness or... Uh, you know, uh, just any gesture of 
romance. Um, but the narcissist's needs are insatiable. Nothing satisfies them. And the partners, like, relentlessly yearn for the return of that romantic, congenial person that they knew. And um, it becomes addictive. It's like playing a slot machine. Once in a while you get a win. Once in a while they're, they're nice to you. And... Uh, or they're flirtatious or compliment you or something. And this uh, addictive cycle becomes very hard to leave. And they've done research um, with this intermittent re- reinforcement with rats. And they would, you know, they stopped getting the reward and their rats kept pressing the lever over and over even when the reward stops coming. First it was regular and then it was intermittent and then they stopped giving the rats a reward, and they kept pressing the lever anyway. So uh, that's what happens. You just think, hoping for that that yearning for that past, uh, that romantic stage, and that is a form of denial uh, because you're not living in reality. You're like fantasizing how it was, you know, how it could be, living in the past, because the present is so painful. And I have a whole section in my book about coming out of denial. And mm. it's, there's grief involved, because now you're facing, oh my, this person has a mental illness. And that, like you said, that lover is not coming back. It doesn't mean the relationship can't improve, but it's not going to be go back to the way it was. And one of the reasons, this goes back to shame again, uh, with the narcissist. Uh, what they're doing when they're dating you is called impression management. And they do that all the time. They don't feel like they need to do it after they're married to you or after you're locked in, in a relationship. Uh, it's work for them. And uh, grandiose narcissists uh, do it a lot with bragging, and this is, again, part of the diagnosis, and uh, saying how great they are, and uh, they use seduction to do it, and it works. And the reason they're doing it is so you will esteem them, and you will think they're great, and you will fall in love with them. That's what they want, because they have so much shame underneath, they may or may not be conscious of it, but so they do this impression management, and even when they're not with you, um, they're always scanning the environment. Like if they're in a room full of people, the first thing they're checking out is like, who's getting the attention? Who's on top? And they want to be sure that that is them. They want to be the one with the most uh, the most popular and the most attention. And this is one of the reasons also, and the most power, which to them that's power. There's a saying like for politicians, uh, no news, uh, no, any news is good news. So even if it's a bad pr- or bad <laughs> press, that's good, as long as they're in the public eye. So that's right. kind of how a narcissist thinks. So this enhances their power and lifts their low self-esteem 
and that's one of the reasons they like to be in a hierarchical environment, like a corporate setting or politician where they can win and they compete, because this is a way that they try to get ahead and be on top. They don't like small groups, intimate settings. They're not comfortable with intimacy, where it's a more egalitarian. They wouldn't want to be part of a group where you're equals. They want to be the boss. So then when that doesn't work, when their bragging and their seduction doesn't work, what else do they do? Then they turn to devaluing. Now they're going to raise themselves up by devaluing you. First, they prefer to do the easier way. But when that doesn't work or when it's too hard, like, you know, after you're in the relationship, they stop idealizing you and they start devaluing you and fault-finding. So um, that goes along with this. We're talking about the romance stage. Well, that dries up pretty quickly when they stop doing this impression management, when they think they don't have to. So again, you have to raise the cost for them. You have to make them know that they have to be on their good behavior or else. So that's part of it. That's that's exactly right. So the the criteria um, is you could think of, I mentioned, this grandiosity. And for some people... They're very successful, and they brag about that. But for others that are not so successful, it's just their fantasy. Um, I haven't been recognized yet. I once knew of a painter who would never show his, he had paintings all over his house and garage, but he would never show them, and he just thought that he was too good, you know, to to go (laughs) into some show or something. But he was such a, a fabulous painter, but he was undiscovered. Um, so, so that that was that grandiosity, and then this need for admiration. They have an excessive need for admiration from others, and the lack of empathy. Those are the three core symptoms, and the first two you could see go back to not feeling not good enough. They're just not enough, and they will make you feel that you're not enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. And like you said, their accusations are their confessions. And then they only need two other traits. So envy is one. That's another E, like lack of empathy. So either they envy others or they imagine the reason people don't like them is because they're envious. I remember as a kid... I would go to my mom and like be crying that some girlfriend was mad at me or somebody didn't like me, and she'd say, "Well, they just envy you, darling." The problem is, oh just my envious. gosh, oh my gosh, my mother said the same thing. It's always because they were envious. Wow, <laughs> right. So I guess she was talking about herself, and um, but it landed on me. It seems so bizarre. It didn't make any sense, and of course, it wasn't helpful. I didn't get any empathy for my feelings, and I didn't get any solution either. So it wasn't very helpful. And then another trait 
is excessive like entitlement. That's another E you can think of. They think that they should get special treatment because they're the best. And again, the flip side of that is they feel unentitled. They don't feel worthy. So they mask that by thinking, I need to be treated like the best. I don't have to wait in line. Laws don't and rules don't apply to me. And uh, this is actually the most annoying trait for partners is this idea that it's nothing is... People accuse narcissists of being hypocritical. Well, it's because the rules don't apply to them. I had one couple where the husband thought his wife should be more attentive and more interested in about his doings and his hobbies and his work and should listen to him and be very interested. And she said, well, but you're not interested in my work. And he said, well, that's right. <laughs> you know, he had no qualms about saying, no, but you should be interested in me. It was like so laughable exactly. to somebody else. But he didn't see anything wrong with that. That made perfect sense to him. So... Um, yeah, you know, in my book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, <clears throat> in my chapter about narcissistic fathers, I pretty much say a very similar thing. They demand respect and perfection from their children, but they give nothing but abuse. They don't give what they expect, and they expect this perfection from the children, but, but they're not that person at all. And um, it is it is very hypocritical. That's right. You know, I never looked at it in that way because my mother would always say um, that she didn't care if her children didn't love her, but she wanted their respect. But she didn't oh. give them the respect. It's like, what did you do to earn my respect? Like... <laughs> <laughs> My being a human used, being is, is not right, enough. Exactly. Okay. My mother used the word mother. So if you referred to her as a she or her or whatever, she would stomp her feet and say, I am not a she. I am your mother. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I, um, now you're reminding me you could never use a pronoun like her. That was insulting. So, <laughs> oh, I never really thought about that. So too ridiculous. The other E is exploitativeness. So they will exploit others. Again, it goes back to their lack of empathy because they don't think that other people have feelings or needs and they come first. And this is all, again, about taking advantage of other people because it goes back to their wanting power to be on top. Um, So they'll use other people to achieve their own ends. So, and then it's very common for narcissists to have an attitude of arrogance, that they're better and superior to everyone. Again, this compensates for the shame underneath. And they think they're so special and unique, they could only be understood by, you know, the best doctor or the best uh, teacher and hang around with the most prestigious people, the most successful or celebrities or the most famous or they only want to be in high status situations, institutions, 
have the best car, the best seat at the restaurant, the most expensive jewelry, the best of everything. They feel they deserve it because, again, inside they don't. So often they'll be attracted to someone who's very skilled or beautiful because to them it's a reflection on on themselves. The only thing is after the marriage, they start devaluing their partner and then they don't see the person in the same light. They tear you down and then they can't look up to you. They tear down the very person that they want to love and so that they feel like they can't love you because now they've criticized you so much. You so, know, it's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> I find, you know, over the hundreds of people that I've worked with, I find that generally if the narcissist is female, that she is a knockout, beautiful, gorgeous, you know, uh, prize, eye candy. But oftentimes the men are not. The men are unattractive. And the women, these are, men, these are men that these women would not look twice at. And in fact, they don't look twice at them. They don't look three times or four times. But eventually the narcissist will, will work on them and get them to believe it. And by that time, by the time they come to me, they're so addicted and in love. And, I, and, and they're saying, I don't understand. You know, he wasn't my type. He was fat and he had, was hairy and he was bald. And, you know, that. And, and I said, so when you think about that now, does that, how does that make you feel? She goes, I still find him attractive. It's, it's such a mind game that's played. Oh, that's very interesting. Um, wow, I haven't had that experience. But, um, well, so... Uh, hmm. I'm not you were doing. My train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, that's okay. You. Yeah, like how they, um, what they find attractive, and then right, they exactly. devalue then, it. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, you know, I wanted I wanted to make a comment that uh, you know, because you and I do work with the, with people who have been abused this way, and. <clears throat> One thing that I've noticed is people who have had an overt narcissist. So in other words, there was nothing under the radar. It was just all out there. It was all abuse. And they finally identified that person as having NPD. And they heal from it, or so they think. Then when they find someone who works under the radar, the covert narcissist, they don't recognize it at all, and they get trapped very easily. So I think it's important for people to understand that narcissists operate in different ways, but the red flags are always the same. Do you believe, do you agree? Yes, the, the covert narcissist is the same criteria. Uh, they're actually, in a lot of ways, harder, in my experience with working with people, they're harder to get along with because they're very moody. Um, the grandiose narcissist often um, might rarely get depressed unless they have a a setback. They have more inner resources to kind of lift up their low self-esteem and their their negative feelings. But the uh, covert narcissist, also called a vulnerable narcissist, 
they act kind of more like a borderline personality with these mood swings. They're very negative. Sometimes um, they act even like suicidal. So they can be very difficult. Um, but one of the things that camouflages them is they may talk more about their feelings. So people think that they're more, because they're more vulnerable that way, uh, less grandiose, more vulnerable. It's kind of on a, I have a chart in my book, a continuum. And so that could be attractive to someone because you think, oh, they're being open. So you can relate to them more. But they really don't want you to get too close. And they still want to be number one. And they still expect you to meet all their needs and be demanding. And they still have this entitled self-importance. So you could say the more grandiose they are, the less vulnerable. And the more vulnerable they are, the less grandiose. It's kind of on a continuum. But the Mm -hmm. thing that ties them both together is this kind of self-entitled self-importance. And the other thing I want to point out is that of those criteria, I mentioned nine, they only have to have five. So the first three, the lack of empathy, the need for admiration, and the grandiosity, whether it's overt or covert, um, those are three essential ones, and then just two more. But notice on this list is not aggression. Not all narcissists are, and rage isn't even on there. For borderlines, it's one of the criteria, but not for a narcissist. So um, don't be fooled by that. And if a person is uh, raging, the more rage they have, the worse their disorder. So and the more it turns to cruelty, maliciousness, then it starts to look like so- sociopathy. Uh, and there's less hope for um, reform or, or therapy with someone who's very cruel and breaks the law and has is does very immoral, has no insight. These are things you want to look for. Uh, and I go through a lot of criteria so people can make a uh, prognosis of the relationship and um, take steps to leave. That's great. That's really, really good that you have that. Um, And you're absolutely right in what you say. Um, Another point I wanted to make, and then I'll let you take over again. (laughs) Not again, but I'm just saying I'll let you kind of end the show with what you want to talk about. But um, another thing is love is not something that adult children of narcissistic abuse codependents, they don't understand what it's supposed to look like. So when someone says they love you, when a narcissist says they love you, but they're not showing it, that's, that suffices. That's it. They love me. And I know that coming out of my childhood, I had a very distorted view of what love relationships were supposed to be. Watching my parents, my perception was that the more dramatic and volatile the relationship was, the more loving it was. 
And so when I went into these relationships and that happened, I thought this is powerful love. And it took me a long time to figure out what, it, what love truly was. Do you have any um, input on that? Yes, I do. I I always was like wondering, like, does my mother love me? And so I did research on it. I wrote a blog about it too, and I have a big section in my book on the chapter "Loving a Narcissist" um, because people ask that, and it's an interesting question because. And philosophers of like, what is love? You know, first of all, from what standpoint are you going to evaluate from the lover or the lovey? That's and then how do you define love? So some researchers felt like we can't really define love, but we're going to look for signs of love. What do people um, think about love? How do they determine if their partner? loves them. And so I list about 10 different signs of love. But there was a line in the book, Women Who Love Too Much, that came out oh, I think, love in that the book. 70s love that book. by Robin yes, Norwood. It, it, it changed my life. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And okay. I was in this crazy marriage, you know, with a lot of drama. I, too, thought this passion Passion was love or something. All this drama was passion equal love. And there was one line in the book I underlined. It's like, women confuse pain with love. Mm. And it's like all this yearning and pain that I was having, it must mean that I love so much or that he loves so much that we're so in love. All this drama, just I was talking about confusing excitement with anxiety. With Well, confusing anxiety and excitement. Well, confusing pain and love. You know, pain is kindness. Pain is when someone goes out of their way. Not pain, I'm sorry. Love is, is kindness. And when someone is interested in your needs and someone uh, even sacrifices their needs for you, you know, like you might for a child, that that's a sign of love. But people have different definitions, so you can assess for yourself. In the end, I say, don't be so obsessed about whether he or she loves you or not. Ask yourself instead, are my needs getting met? Good point. Yeah, because a lot of narcissists have learned, they have enough cognitive uh, emotional awareness to learn how to be appropriate. And so they may say things that sound right, but you may feel inside this feeling like it doesn't feel real, it doesn't feel authentic. So trust your feelings. That's one of the takeaways. I want people, again, if you think you're being abused, you probably are. If you are suspecting something, if you're feeling something, trust your feelings. So a lot of people growing up in dysfunctional families have are in denial of their feelings. That's one of the first things in recovery 
because it gets so distorted in a family where your feelings are put down or shamed that you have to learn to identify them, name them, honor them, value them, and they are your guide. And I want to um, point out, I've said that this process is a personal transformation in my book because it's not just about this relationship. It's about healing yourself. And you'll either be happier in the relationship or you'll leave because you're happy, not because you're so miserable, because your life should not be dependent on another person, even if it's not a narcissist. You know, your self-esteem and your happiness is your responsibility. It's an inside job. And if you're so unhappy in a relationship or in a work situation, you're out of alignment with your soul. So it's really about coming back into alignment with your soul and expressing who you were meant to be, who you really are, and have the freedom to do that and the courage to do that. So doing that with a narcissist takes a lot of courage, and that's building that muscle, that strength inside to you to be happier whether you're in a relationship, whether you're out of relationship. I left my marriage not because I was so miserable, but because I had built a life that I wanted to go to, that I was happy at that point. And the relationship was like an inconvenience at that point. I wasn't getting enough of what I wanted in a relationship. So interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I love what you said. I love the way that you express that. That's so true. That's so true. We, um, it, it, that's really a good barometer for whether or not this is working for you. Not because it's labeled as narcissistic or whatever it is, or psychopathic or whatever, but because you're not getting your needs met. Um, some people don't know what their needs are. You know, it, it's if they, you know, if they grew up in a, in a home with a narcissistic parent, and then they went right into a narcissistic relationship, they've never ever figured out what their needs are. They don't know who they are. You know, often I ask people, you know, tell me, tell me who you are. I don't, not your job, not your career, not your roles. Tell me who you are. And so many adult children of, <clears throat> of narcissistic abuse go. I have no idea. Right. <laughs> so denial, I mentioned, now there's traits, there's five core traits, in my opinion, of, of codependency. And I have a chapter comparing the narcissist and the codependent because they share these traits. But denial of needs and denial of feelings, denial of trauma, uh, denial of wants, that's very typical Denial is the core of um, addiction and, and codependency. So, uh, you know, coming out of denial, not about just the narcissist, but of yourself, too. And, yes. and starting to uh, honor your needs and know what they are, because that's why you're sacrificing them. You don't even know what they are or, or that they have any value. That's right. That's right. Wow, what a great conversation, Darlene. I'm so glad that we were able to talk about this. So um, your book is called Dating, Loving, and Leaving a Narcissist, Essential Tools for Improving or Leaving Narcissistic and Abusive Relationships, Darlene Lancer. And um, 
Darling, what is your website? Well, you can Google my name uh, and find my website, DarleneLancer.com. And I have another one devoted to codependency and all my books is WhatIsCodependency.com. I blog monthly and have over uh, 200 blogs on there. You could subscribe to that. And on my media page, I have tons of podcasts and some old ones with Randy, too. And uh, (laughs) uh, as I said, I have a YouTube channel. Um, So you can find me on Instagram. And I really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. And uh, congratulations on your book. I didn't know it at the time when we talked before. This is more recent. It's a great book also. Thank you. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah. So I have a lot of tools. All my books are workbooks, by the way. So oh, I they have, are. Uh, yeah, so I have one on self-esteem, one on finding self-forgiveness, uh, overcoming perfectionism. The worst kind of narcissist is a perfectionistic one because narcissism itself is a pursuit of perfection. But uh, and, and many codependents are perfectionistic too. True. Because it's a defense to shame. And uh, how to raise your self-esteem. I have webinars, uh, overcoming guilt. They're all workbooks. So they're not just a lot of intellectual information. Uh, the things we've been talking about, I have steps in my book, um, Dating, Loving, and Leaving a Narcissist, or any abusing, abusive relationship. Or if it's a coworker or a parent, uh, or a sibling, and the same things apply. But mm-hmm. you do the the exercises and the steps, and you'll start changing, and then you'll see the relationship change. Wow, that's so wonderful. I'm so glad you have that book out there. Well, um, I wish you great success with it. Uh, there are so many people looking for this kind of information. I'm sure you will have it. And Darlene's first book was Codependency for Dummies, and uh, that was a, a huge hit. So uh, just so that you know, Darlene's been in the um, literary world for quite a while. Uh, Thank you so much for today. You're welcome. Thank you, Darlene. I really appreciate you being with me. Okay. Goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye. We are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email me at loveyourlife at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.